What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my mandem, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on, mate? Mandem, we here? We reviewing? Uh, I forget all the slang. There's lots of great UK slang. Listen to UK rap, you'll get it. Uh, watch yeah. Top Boy on Netflix, you'll get it. But yeah, we here. Big day. Big day. We got... Uh, some big albums to talk about right as the year's wrapping up. We got some big movies to talk about. Uh, and we also have a huge, possibly late contender for show of the year to talk about as well. So to make sure that you are catching all of our takes, hit that subscribe button if you're watching on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to find the podcast anyway that you want to listen to it. And also give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Um, Dave, your background. You got your guy, Stormzy, wearing <laughs> a crown made of words or letters. I'm not quite sure. Haven't looked that closely at the cover. But he dropped the album, Heavy is the Head. Uh, I, I know that this was an album you were anticipating, looking forward to. How did you feel about Heavy is the Head? I liked it a lot. Uh, I say Stormzy's profile has continued to rise ever since his last album, Gang Signs and Prayer, his debut. And, you know, since that album, he just kind of continues to really rapidly ascend the UK rap scene and music scene in general. You know, he's a pretty young guy, but already, I think, one of their most high profile artists, capped off, of course, with a Glastonbury headlining set earlier this year, which drew rave reviews for the production value and the performance he, he gave. And you could tell he just had a, a rising sense of clout when you know, the lead single several months ago at this point, Vasi Bop, has Idris Elba just cameoing in it, you know? Because that's Stormzy. He has that pull now. And he kind of gets to that on this album, I think, in a fun way. But uh, the sound, you know, is kind of cool because he it's not it's not like genre blending. But there's, it's kind of multi-genre. He does a lot of the different rap right. stuff. There's some singing on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked with, I think, was it nine different producers and 16 different studios. The sound is quite varied. And I think for the most part, he does it pretty well. So I, I enjoy this a lot. Yeah, you know, it felt like it kind of came in sections. Like the back half of the album felt a bit more like grimy to me. Whereas mm-hmm. like that middle part, especially around like one second with her or um do better those feel like just like r&b type yep. songs in general and you know the beginning sounded just a little bit more like uh i don't know if trance is, or trap is the right word but just kind of a little more traditional maybe what you're hearing in like sure. pop rap shout out spotify for inventing pop rap um <laughs> but yeah no i thought this was a fantastic album and uh i think that there's a lot to like on here not every song hit for me but most of the features, even with your boy Ed Sheeran, I yeah. <laughs> own it. I was like, yeah, decent showing from him. So a lot to like here. What what stood out to you most? Yeah, I mean, own it, own it, man. That's a, an obvious play at a radio song. But I mean, Burna Boy, who's, you know, just got the Grammy nomination for African Giant. He's super hot right now and doing his thing. And then you have Ed, uh, you know, Stormzy's fellow Englander. So I think it's a good collab, actually. And uh, of course, they collab- Stormzy was on uh, Ed's album earlier this year that was taking back to London, where they actually kind of traded traded bars in a competent way. Sheeran actually acquitted himself pretty well, considering our thoughts on the rest of that album. Uh, 
but yeah, I think that, that, that's a cool, uh, it's a cool radio song. You know her, I'm hearing her and I'm like, man, this is good. I'm really tired of, of her being everywhere, but this is a good track. It is good. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, like you said, at the end, you have a song like Wiley Flow, where he's basically telling people to stop bragging about charting when they first start charting and stuff. It's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, much more grime, much more hardcore, because he can, he can really rap with the best of them if he wants to. And well, I think that's not nearly his focus. Again, he, he, he likes to mix it up in a song like Crown, which we put on our mm-hmm. Spotify playlist where he sings the hook but also yeah. raps on the song as well you, you just kind of get the versatility right away so yeah. it, i think it's pretty well balanced crown was a real standout to me um on this i also really liked handsome um you know it had this a bit of a trap vibe but then it brings in these like backing vocals near the end that had made it feel like a very like creepy sounding track um and you talk about the versatility on this album i think it's it's evident that he's skilled in so many different uh, styles and flows and um, yeah definitely a person whose star is only going to be rising um, did you have like maybe one favorite track off this I like Rachel's little brother a lot where mm-hmm. he has the line about being multi-talented like Don like lover mm-hmm. and like it's a sick rhyme when he drops it I'm like I mean that's quit the boast but it sounded good when he said it so we'll, we'll let it go um, yeah I like crown a lot I think Vossi Bach it's a little older now but that song really goes Wiley Flow um. Yeah. Uh, even the, from the second track, "Audacity" with a uh, heady one. Every time I read that, I think it says "Hoodie Allen," but uh, <laughs> it's good. Um. Yeah, I was actually thinking, like, you know, there was, he made some news a few weeks ago where Stormzy revealed that he actually turned down a Jay Z collaboration because he wanted to be just uh, English people on the track and stuff. And I think it kind of just speaks to the profile where Stormzy actually has the pull. And the success to be like, actually thanks but no thanks so oh, big fan but next time for what i'm going for here you ain't getting it done it's pretty uh pretty ballsy but you know as he as he gets it gets to it on this album you know he's he's not a perfect guy but he's uh i think he, he knows that he's really really rising to a really high level and it's yeah. cool to see the music actually uh back that up you know mm-hmm. no I, I completely agree i think his his star is only going up at this point as is our maybe one of our favorite producers and DJs right now, Kay Trinata, um, dropping his sophomore album, Bubba, um, you know, he dropped in 2016, uh, 99.9%, mm-hmm. an album we both loved. I think it made, uh, at least one of, if not both of our end of the year lists at that point. Um, glowed up. Yeah. I mean, when you have Anderson Pac, uh, showing out like that and bringing in just this really like, uh, lush and, and versatile and, and interesting um, production. It's just, it's infectious. And I think it's a lot more of the same on Bubba. And though Bubba, I don't know if it has, um, it, it feels just more consistent, I think, to me. With 99.9%, it was really good, but I kind of found myself not going back to some of those tracks as much. Listening to Bubba okay. once or twice over the weekend, uh, I didn't find myself skipping very much at all, um, even though it's a bit like choppy, I think, at points, because there's a lot of like small snippets of songs kind of thrown in at parts or the transitions I feel like don't always hit. Um, he's got a lot of high profile collaborators on this album. And it, 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 I think it shows um, how do you feel about Bubba as the sophomore album for Kate Trinata? Yeah, this is his first album, second album, but second 
album under the Cage Nine name, but first on RCA Records, the 99.9% was under XL, which is an independent British label. And, you know, seeing that now he's on, on major, he has a lot more features and they still seem really tactical. Like a lot of these people he's worked with before, like Goldlink and Mick Jenkins, but all the features I think really showed out and they like, like on 10% when Kaliukas pops in, you're like, wow, this, 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 this fits really good. Tanache towards the back end. Mm -hmm. Um, Really smart choices, but yeah, overall, I think, you know, it's just the grooves, the the sick grooves, man. Do you know, this is like, he, he, he has a really interested, uh, interesting and intricate production style that a lot of other DJs at the time don't make any attempt to do. And because he's also a true producer as well, just working for other people and just making them beats. He really is, you know, the, the whole package in that regard. But there's like just a lot of, a lot of cool shit on this, man. Since drums, whatever you want, he's, he's doing it because he's just that talented. Yeah. And, you know, I actually was wondering if, you know, because he's, he's Canadian. I was actually wondering, like, has he ever considered collaborating with Drake? Like, just get the, get the Canada connection going or even the weekend or something. It feels like, almost too cool for Drake, honestly. <laughs> yeah, he probably, he probably doesn't care. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of awesome songs on here, which I really, I, I think it's great. Yeah, the, the album is fantastic. Um, you know, I think we'll be talking, at least I think I'll be talking about it a little bit more next week uh, when we're dropping our, or maybe in a week, two weeks, when we're dropping our best music of the year. Um, but you, you know, you go down the list and there's there's really banger after banger on this. I thought Gray Area with Mick Jenkins was a clear yeah. standout. Um, <laughs> literally, in my notes, I just put, wow, like the drums on that <laughs> um, are fantastic. Um, 10%, I, I thought yeah. was a clear standout, you know, which you already mentioned with Kaylee Yukis. Um, I really actually liked the Estelle song. And I was like, when was the last time I heard Estelle on a track? Like, American Boy. Yeah, I was going to say, hasn't been since years ago. Yet. Um, but then probably my favorite track um, is the last one, Midsection, which was added to the playlist um, already, featuring Pharrell. You know, and um, Pharrell, I think I can usually take him or leave him, but I think he sounds really good on this. And mm-hmm. it's so groovy that, you know, you use groovy as a way to describe it, but like dancey. Like you really just want to move to that track. And I think it really sounds like he took Pharrell's. Um, opinion and his collaboration on this because it sounds like it could be a Pharrell or a Kachanada track which I thought was uh, a really great collaboration any other tracks that stood out to you or any other thoughts on this yeah midsection you know I listened to it I was like oh man you know this kind of seems like Pharrell post blurred lines like realizing that like the 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 lyrics of blurred lines are very very questionable upon (laughs) further reflection but the the sentiment of the song and, and, and the groove is still great Right. And Pharrell has brought that sensibility to Kate Trinata. That's my thoughts on midsection. It sounds awesome. Yeah, it does. Um, and it sounds like it could be a nerd song, which I think is what I like about it. It's right. It kind of falls on sure. both sides. Um, what else did you have for it? I liked Gold Lake on Vexo a lot, and I thought yeah. Vexo's transition into Scared to Death, which is just an instrumental track. I really like that that mm-hmm. sequencing there. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, at, at worst, you know, like, there's a lot of tracks. At worst... It's just something you kind of bob your head to, but nothing's ever like offensive or glaring. You know, he's not like tonight where he, they're 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 mixing everything in a blender 
and, and to make it make it intentionally jarring. Mm-hmm. He has much more soother and trying to be more soothing to the ear while still actually bringing a lot of variety to the table. So the whole time it sounds good, even if some songs naturally will rise to the top more than others. Yeah. Kate Trinata, I mean, I'm, I was trying to think who are like my favorite like DJs out there right now. Do you like who would you have up there with him? Disclosure. Yep. It's really that, that's it. I think it's them. Um, oh, yeah. Jamie XX, if you count him. Yeah. When, when he's working, he's. But these are all people that, I mean, disclosure is at least, least of this, but these are guys that are just unlike other DJs, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's the sound of today, but just in general, like they're. They're really producers and arrangers as well as DJs. So, yeah, yeah I, I think it speaks to what I'm more interested in. After hearing um, FK Twig's most recent album, I've, I've been finding myself listening to a little bit of Nicholas Jar every once in a while. I think he might Ooh. be up there too, but um, he doesn't have like the the appeal to me that someone like Disclosure, Kate Shinada, or GBXX have because his songs just don't feel as accessible. But, like I recognize his talent; like he's mm-hmm. just fantastic. Um, but yeah, definitely check out Bubba if you haven't. If you're not familiar with Kate Trinata, get familiar because he ain't going nowhere. Just like Harry Styles, man, he ain't going nowhere either. Sign uh, of the times. So I, I found myself in New York City uh, this past Thursday and Friday. Billboards? And I was, <laughs> well, I, I saw some billboards. I actually saw um, more billboards for Kate Trinata than I noticed for Harry Fuck Styles. yeah, you did. Which RCA, I was, I, baby. Yeah, Let's which go. I was pumped about. Um, but... I walked by uh, Radio City, or I was going to Radio mm-hmm. City Music Hall, and there was a line of people with like tents and stuff out, and I was like, what are they waiting for? And oh, there's a sign, shit. they're camping that? out for Niles on SNL. And I was like, oh, damn, that, like, Niles? And didn't Liam Payne just Nile. release an album? Um, Liam Payne, yeah, last uh, uh, last week. So, yeah. the sixth. One Direction, everywhere right now. Um, even though they're not together, they're still yeah. constantly in the consciousness. Louis has an album coming out at the end of January as well, his first one. Hmm. And Zane's obviously in the tabloids and a famous guy in general. So yeah. they're they're all doing something. They're doing something. Harry, Harry's clearly the most interesting from a musical perspective. That goes without saying. And I think also just the most popular in general, um, it seems like. Um, but is his music any good? So the the first album... Uh, Harry Styles back in 2017. Mm-hmm. I think we thought there was a lot of promise there, uh, maybe more mature than we expected. But, um, you know, like songs like Sign of the Times or um, Woman, I think we were like, ah, pretty good. There's something here. But it never really ended up being, like, I think as good as we thought it could be. Comes back with Fine Line. And uh, Dave, what did you think of Fine Line? Uh... I like the production. I think it sounds pretty good the whole time. Very, <laughs> uh, very high class. Uh, but Harry is not an amazing vocalist. He would never say he was, you know, so he's not going to wow you with that. Therefore, he needs to wow you with his songwriting or at least his ideas about the songs he's making. And I just don't know if that's accomplished on this. There's a lot of, a lot of moments on Fine Line that I just find are very, um, very bland or bland or just uninteresting. Like the second single, Watermelon Sugar. Ooh, perfectly fine. Song. It's just like, there's, there's nothing to it though. 
You know, anyone like, could have made that. There's nothing about right. that that screams Harry Styles. I think that's the problem. What is Harry Styles' musical identity? I don't think we know it still. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I said it's a bad song. I guess it's not a bad song, but I, I, oh, I don't like found it. it. You can call it bad. I, don't, I found I don't it bland. I, I, I just, I found it a bit cringeworthy too. Like, and I right. think I, I think that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. Like the, the writing on this, it's just not very deep. And for an album that's talking about like a real relationship he went through, you know, his breakup with, um, that French model, like Camille Rowe, I think her yep. name is. That's her name. Um, it's, it, it feels like, it feels very like surface levelly. Like he's trying, he's trying to get somewhere, but really only is like, eh, we'll get there. Um, right. And you know, there, there was a lot of like press leading up to the, the release of this where he, you know, I think he did an interview with Zane Lowe. I watched some clips of, and he's talking about how he, this was, you know, his opportunity to really like go out there and try things they never could in one direction. And, you know, this, he really got to explore parts of himself he never got did to. Like, I was like, did uh, hallucinogenic drugs for the first time. Yeah, but I was like, maybe you should take something different because I feel like you didn't really discover much other than, yeah, you were sad and now you're moving on from being sad. And that's literally something you could have done without taking hallucinogenic drugs. I hope. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, I think for me, I'm not someone who demands lyrics at all times or anything, but I think in this case because he's ultimately giving us, at least right now, soft pop rock. I need something to be interesting. And like, while the production's fine, it's not offensive. It's also not like super showy. And I think that's just my problem with this is that it, it, nothing stands out to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the one moment that I actually really enjoyed was Sunflower Volume 6 towards the mm-hmm. end. And that's conveniently the only song written or produced by Greg Kirsten. How about that? Yeah, Sunflower Volume 6 stood out to me. I liked um, Falling a lot. I think there's some good stuff in there. Yeah, Um, that was pretty good. But that also might stand out because it comes after Cherry, which is pretty like, it's like uh, Hozier, but more boring. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's saying something. And the other thing is like, you kind of move on to like a song like Canyon Moon, where I think there's like a lot there that, is like pretty interesting and a lot more engaging than other stuff on the album. But I found myself just kind of comparing it to, Oh, this sounds like maybe um, like a vampire weekend throwaway track, you know, right. like so or something that or like a rip off track in a sense. I think that's the thing is there's a lot of like things on here where I find myself thinking, Oh, this sounds like something else I listened to or yeah, this, exactly. this reminds me of something. But Adore never you. Feels... Sounds like Maroon five. Exactly. Not offensive. Definitely radio potential, mm-hmm. but also not unique or that special. Right. So uh, I think I think Harry's still trying to find what like makes him him. Um, I also wonder like how much he's actually like invested in his music career as he you know he acted in Dunkirk last year, seventeen, uh, twenty seventeen. Jeez, mm-hmm. and uh, I wonder if he he might be like more interested in like other ventures for himself right, right now. You know, he's just a very famous person. Reportedly, he had turned down the uh, Prince Edward role for the Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, remake i know a lot of people were kind of actually clamoring for that casting i just would have been interested in it um he had something else coming up i forget but like yeah overall like i'm in on his celebrity and stuff he does seem like a a little more thoughtful than you would expect from like the you know oh for sure model boy band kind of guy you know th- mm-hmm. there's more going on under the hood but i think musically we're still we're still working on that but that's also okay. It's not. It, it, that's not. It's not a not a shot or anything. Um, but 
you know, he, he has plenty of time and clout to do whatever the hell he wants. So I just hope he continues to try. Cause that's the thing. It's like, like when he announced his tour before this album came out, like when the dates went up, like Ticketmaster was trending cause he is so popular and so famous that there's so much demand to see him do this, this tour before we even hear the music. Mm-hmm. I just hope he doesn't get complacent cause he's already so successful. That's all. No, I, I agree. Um, we, I think that there, that he has a lot of potential to be more than he is. I think it's just uh, breaking out of that One Direction mold and really finding his voice. It's more maybe more challenging than he expected, but uh, still some stuff to like. Check out our playlist at now, uh, Nostalgia uh, Best Twenty Nostalgia Best of Twenty Nineteen on there Spotify. Go. Oof, good good job, Pat. Um, why don't we move on to? Something else that uh, seems like a lot of show, but maybe a little substance. Six Underground. <laughs> uh, Dave, Michael Bay, dropping this Netflix heater starring Ryan Reynolds and uh, I don't really Corey know. Corey Hawkins. Else. Yeah, I Melanie guess Corey Laurent. Hawkins. Yeah, Mel- Melanie Laurent I'm down with. Um, so what did uh, you think of Six Underground? <laughs> I was gonna actually ask you, uh, would you have watched this if it wasn't for content purposes? No, there's not no shot. Are you a Michael Bay guy? Have you? Well, I've actually realized I've watched damn near all of his movies. <laughs> I've seen all the Transformers, Bad Boys, Pain and Gain. Um, the only one I hadn't seen, I haven't seen Thirteen Hours. I haven't seen The Rock, but Armageddon, of course, everyone's seen that. Um, uh, do you have any like movies of his that are touchstones for you? Well, yeah, The Rock is great. Um, Armageddon's great. Bad Boys, Bad Boys 2, also great. Um, maybe the first Transformers, pretty good. And then that's about it. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not super into, like, just the watching stuff blow up and, like, crazy, crazy action. But it can be fun sometimes. And I, I get why Netflix would want Michael Bay to make a movie for them, right? Because this is the type of, like, mindless uh movie going that people clamor for because it's exactly that they turn it on they watch it explode it looks really cool it looks pretty good and that's it and uh you don't need to really think about it you don't need to try to interpret if you don't want to i think maybe he tries to get some other themes in here like there seems like there's a fast and furious type like family theme going on here we're all Mm. we got but like very (laughs) mildly touched on and uh yeah that's about it (laughs) would you have watched this uh i would have i would have uh like honestly like michael bay is like a tech a technician when it comes to directing action Mm -hmm. and in this case because it's netflix they just gave him a blank check reportedly 150 million kind of sounds low for a budget when you watch this movie to be honest um everything's on location all over the world plenty of cgi as well um, but the CGI isn't quite as in your face as something like Transformers. You know, there's plenty of practical stuff in this movie as well. But because it's Michael Bay unrestrained, it, this the prospect of that would have got me to watch it. Um, but as you said, you know, I think actually this movie is better if you don't think about it too much because the movie does not stand up to any kind of uh, deeper thought because from a plot perspective, it's completely incomprehensible. But that's also really neither here nor there. We're not watching that. We're watching attractive people. Some of them are quite famous. Uh, do crazy shit. 
And because it's Michael Bay, it's really crazy shit. I think that first 20 minutes or so, that car chase in Florence, um, certainly implausible. I just don't see how you can race around Florence that long. But having been there, you've been there too. It's like, I don't know. Before, I don't know about it. This isn't as accurate. But that, 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 that car chase is fucking thrilling. Oh, yeah. You know? And Dave Franco, as you mentioned to me off air, definitely getting that bag in a fun way. You know, just kind of doing, doing Dave Franco things. Mm-hmm. And for like from 30 there, minutes. It, yeah. 20 minutes or whatever it's great and like I, i'm kind of disappointed that the end thing with the magnets was spoiled by the trailer because i think that's actually a really awesome set piece and you also watch people do parkour and get stabbed and shot and yeah it's uh it's pretty fun but you know you also don't want to think about it too hard because these people uh are just vigilantes fucking murdering people and this movie shows lots of people dying civilians yeah. cops everyone it's wanton death in this film in very graphic <laughs> ways like i keep right. thinking about when uh who is it Corey hawkins puts the grenade in that guy's mouth and pulls the the pin <laughs> just insane I mean, shit even the Corey hawkins th- uh, uh flashback where he's on the sniper roof yeah. and he watches his guys get blown up by a rocket like that's kind of like a really visceral shot obviously completely com- generated but like watching everyone explode with a missile and you know in their soldiers it's like ah jeez um but yeah you know i i uh i just like it for the audacity of the whole enterprise <laughs> yeah you know it's it's even hard to like rate this movie so right now i think it has like a 32 percent rotten yeah, tomatoes not good like but i mean when you, when you go into this movie, I mean, what are people really looking for? Yeah, like, it's about sh- expectations. Yeah, and and like the scenes where I'm forgetting which one it is. Was it Ben Hardy? Um, yes, S three when he's like running around parkouring everywhere. Like that shit's awesome to watch and so much fun. Um, mm-hmm. Especially after Corey Hawkins like shoots out a big tank of water to save yeah, the rest the, of them. The big pool thing. <laughs> yeah, like that that whole scene is awesome, and it actually feels like. If I had one critique, I, I like when in these movies it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I felt like that scene was so big, how they were trapped in that tower and had to get right. out. And Hong Kong. And he shoots, yeah, and then he's running around. And then the way it kind of ends, where they get the guy out of there and throw him out uh, to, you know, out of the helicopter. Right. That, that, uh, off the yacht just didn't feel as like big to me. So I was kind of like, ah, like that's not as cool as the last one I saw. But other sure. than that, I was just like man i'm not expecting anything ryan reynolds was trying to be his like charming goofy self and he was definitely goofy i don't know if it landed but it was fine yeah well that's the other thing i didn't i didn't expect it to be so meta like right like i really self-referential to the real world where he's citing eight mile lyrics or butch cassidy and the sundance kid stuff like that um Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean this is this is this is reynolds you know once he reestablished himself and became a success, this is the Reynolds we get. This is Detective Pikachu. This is Deadpool. This is what he does. And it's kind of interesting to think about him as being this like philanthropist vigilante mastermind, mm-hmm. but he's got a role with it. And I did like one of his, one of his lines um, when like when he's explaining the plan and it's a, not a great explanation. It's still hard to follow what they're actually doing. But in the beginning, he was explaining the plan to his team, and he has these cups, and he's like, we have the four generals, quattro cunts. I laugh really hard. I thought that was hilarious. Um, there's a few other moments. Uh, cool to see Ben Hardy do, doing some stuff, you know, but using Bohemian Rhapsody. 
before that he was in X-Men Apocalypse, but yep. interesting if he's a guy. And Corey Hawkins hasn't done anything super notable since straight out of Compton, so I hope more people see these eyes. And Melly Laurent, um, where have you been since Inglorious Bastards back in Europe? Gonna... We, we know where you've been, but <laughs> get the bag. I was going to say, I, I want to see Melanie Laurent in more things because she's so good in, in Bastards and mm-hmm. pretty much everything I've seen her in. And this, I mean, yeah, I don't think you can judge any of these actors on if they're they're good or not by nah. their performance. They look good doing it. Movie. Exactly. So, um, yeah, <laughs> Six Underground, it doesn't, I mean, you're already buying Netflix, so if you have it, just throw it on. You'll watch it. Honestly, watch the first half hour. Just watch that first car chase. You'll get the idea. Yeah, and if you want to stop there, I don't blame you. But I think it's 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 what action that's like, like going for in such a way. I think it's at least worth taking a peek at. Um, going from a, a very grand movie to a much, uh, I'd say, a much smaller scale movie. In Richard Jewell, Clint Eastwood's newest feature film, uh, pulling at a, a admirable seventy four percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Only made five million at the box office this weekend, Dave. Um, Warner yeah. Brothers having a rough year. Continues, yeah. especially when you got a lot of really good performances in this. You know, a couple yeah. of people have already been nominated for Golden Globes or SAG Awards off this, um, and you have a lot of stars. You know, you got well, Paul Walter Hauser. This really probably is his star making role or like his yep. breakout role. But Sam Rockwell, Kathy Bates, John Hamm, Olivia Wilde, like. There are big names in this. Yep. Um, Richard Jewell, any good? Did, did you like it? I did. I did like it a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of unfortunate that there's a, a lot of controversy justly around the film. It's kind of distracting from, you know, the rest of it. Um, I think it, it does fit in a lot of the recent Clint uh, filmography as well from his directing work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did like it. I think it works. What about you? I thought it was a pretty good movie. Uh, I wouldn't say it's my one of my favorites I've seen this year, but I thought it was still really good. I thought specifically Rockwell and Paul Walter Hauser uh, really were excellent. And then Kathy Bates as well, but um, I wouldn't right. say to the same degree. Although her, her press conference at the end, I thought was pretty moving. Um, yeah. That, that, that'll be the, uh, the awards reel right there for her. Um, but yeah, you know, you, you talked about the controversy and that was really my, my first thought leaving the film was uh, Olivia Wilde going for it, man. Like you talk yeah. about like the overacting award or whatever the, the name yeah. of it is at this point. She would, yeah. She wins. Um, she wins on a landslide. Cause she, every time she's on the screen, she is just like a complete pistol and not always in the best ways. How did you feel about her performance? So, Honestly, from her performance, it was my favorite Olivia Wilde acting role in a long time. I was looking back at her acting career, and it's honestly not that flattering. No. Like, what is her signature film? I don't know. Like, maybe her season on the OC? Like, I feel like she's... The filmography is not, not, not impressive. The best thing she's done is Booksmart, which she directed this year, and it's unfortunate that we're already distracted from that and onto choices made with a role she did yeah i feel like she's more famous for her looks unfortunately just being a very attractive right. actress um, I, I don't know if she would be considered a great actor um and of course the controversy around this film being that she portrays kathy scruggs yep. uh reporter for the atlantic sun journal or whatever it's called on there I'm, 
I didn't write it down. Local local paper. Local paper. And uh, in the film, she she trades sex to get tips and for stories and things like that. And specifically, she in the film uh, uh, basically makes an agreement with John Hand, playing an FBI agent, that mm-hmm. um, she would, she'll trade sex for a tip on uh, the the investigation bombing. to the bombing. And the, the the newspaper has come out and written a pretty scathing editorial saying that this is not true, asking for a uh, like a warning at the beginning of the movie that this is not fact based, this character portrayal. Um, but Wilde has pushed back on it, you know, saying that uh, you know John Hamm's character uh, playing an FBI agent is puts the same scrutiny. Fair point. Um, you know, there's a lot of accounts out there about Kathy Scruggs as, as a reporter. Some that would back this this portrayal. Some that would not uh, would refute this portrayal. So it's it's a bit of a gray area. Where do you fall in, in terms of this right. portrayal of this character? So she she in a sense she would be right to call it a double standard if Ham was also playing someone who was a real person. Mm-hmm. But he's just a composite figure, right? Right. And on top of that. What's the whole message of Richard Jewell? Why is the story worth telling? Why is the movie successful? Because it's about, you know, institutions, the FBI, media, getting something wrong and hurting someone as a result. And like the libelous accounts and how that affected Richard Jewell's life, right? It's a great story. And definitely right up Clint Eastwood's alley. But you, it just becomes hypocritical when you do that same thing to a real person you're portraying in the movie. And Clint did not have any sympathy when pushed on this recently, which just is just comes across as tone deaf where he just doesn't get it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, if, and when I heard about this movie and this controversy, I was like, man, this is going to be politicized. People that hate the media are going to use this. And now they're running with it being as, oh, this controversy is being uh, used. So the media doesn't have to answer for this movie. It's like, no, the media is happy that something like this about, exists but like you have to complete the complete all the dots and clint's not doing that with something like this mm-hmm. and it's again it's just disappointing because the story is good and everything else about the movie is good and paul walter hauser doesn't deserve to answer doesn't need to answer questions about this you know like it, it's just really unfortunate um because I, I think everything else about the movie is really good yeah yeah and you know i i, I think you make some good points i also think um I think that they could have definitely portrayed that in the movie without being so explicit about it. Right. And that maybe that wouldn't have been um, as true to the, the way that the character is written in this, but like, certainly they could have had her like, you know, like rubbing Ham's leg instead of like explicitly saying like, ah, so you gonna go in my car and bang or what's, what's yeah, the deal here? You got know? a room. I think there's ways to like be a little more subtle about it, but I think it, it speaks to a little bit about what Clint is trying to maybe say about the media. Um, and like you know the griminess of reporting and especially in this sort of case but um, I guess before we move on to maybe the other parts of the film did you feel like like this was like a political statement in any way from from Clint you know very famously he was uh, he did the whole thing on stage where at the convention yeah Um, so did you feel like he was trying to make any political statements with this Um, I mean he's he's been he's had his political thoughts shared publicly for years and he's been directing movies since the 70s so that's hardly the first time um you know watching the movie i think it's ultimately i'd say it's fair because it's also critiquing the fbi just as much and if you watch the movie they're ultimately the genesis 
of a lot of stuff. So it doesn't sound like overly political, but it also can come across irresponsible, I guess, if depending on the framing, because you know people will make it political. Mm-hmm. And they would have done that even if the wild thing wasn't an issue. So, yeah, I mean, it's it. I mean, I think of this in a piece. This is like American Sniper. This is like Sully. This is like the fifteen seventeen, the Paris. Those movies all differ in quality, but they're all the same thing about Clint's just real big interest in like civilian heroism and stuff, mm-hmm. and or at least not a not famous heroism, whatever. So. Yeah, it, it definitely fits fits his um his mo of late. So, yeah, yeah. I, I do think it's political on some level, but um, I, I think people can read into this in different ways. You know, especially with the way that the current administration um, has attacked the FBI pretty openly. Um, right. Yeah, I think people can kind of take this as a movie that's fairly right wing leaning at this point and sure. I don't I, I don't think Clint intended it that way. At least I didn't get that vibe watching the movie that he was like overtly trying to say that. No. Um ultimately he's just telling the story the way, you know. Yeah. It seems seems to be pretty accurate in terms of the broad strokes from everything I've gathered. So again, it's definitely a good story worth telling. And the the performances really make that so. Yeah, and I think that that's the that's a good place to kind of move into is Paul Walter Hauser, I mean what a force he was in this movie, man. And I, I think Rockwell has definitely the more like showy part, you know, because uh, Jewel on, on all accounts was a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a goofy dude. Like I'm not really sure the yeah. way to put it, but he was simple he was, guy, I guess. Yeah. Simple, a little bit more like mild mannered in a lot of ways. And right. um, you know, Sam Rockwell playing Watson Bryant, this like kind of, this attorney who plays by his own rules and no one can control him and kind of fuck the man type ideal um, is a lot more like in your face, like out there shouting, you know, having like the funny lines. Whereas Walter Hauser is just kind of playing this like, you know, goofy dude. And I think it comes across really well. And I think when you finally start to see um, Jewel being like broken down by what's happening to him, that's when you really get to see him just crushing this role. I think right. he's fantastic. And we've seen glimpses of it, you know, you know I, Tanya, um, Black Klansman. Yeah, Black Klansman. But this really feels like like his coming out party. How did you feel about his performance? Oh, yeah, he was great. I think he's won and been nominated for two Breakthrough Performance Awards so far this year from, you know, some smaller bodies. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's like a, it makes sense as a continuation of like I, Tanya and Klansman. You get like the energy and timing that. Hauser just really brings to his roles and then seeing that expand in someone like Jewel which there is comedic elements to that personality and the story plays into that you know there's like stuff played for laps when like Rock was like uh, you have guns in the house and he's like sir this is Georgia like, there's lots of funny <laughs> yeah. stuff in there but also he's able you know like the, the, every time he says you know uh, I get it you know I'm, I'm law enforcement too like mm-hmm. it lands every time because he's yeah. really that 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 personality so yeah hauser's awesome yeah um, and, you know rockwell again just being really good like he's been the past few years and kathy bates she won i think for was it afi or something and mm-hmm. ultimately it's like a, a one scene role but she's really good and obviously she's a you know a legend at this point but um and, and ham is also really good at being um be, being a villain yeah performances are great yeah ham which i 
you know, it's it's interesting. I actually saw Alan Sepinwall, who I feel like we've mentioned in like three three straight episodes now. He's great. Um, he is great. But he was talking about how he finds it a bit befuddling that Ham hasn't found himself in more like feature roles and continues to play like these these supporting roles in all these these films. But I think it's because like he, really, he really crushes them when he does them. Like I thought he was so hateable in this movie, and like I usually love John Ham, and he is just like detestable by the end of this and you really like when when he hands him the letter that the investigation was you know found no wrongdoing he's like just just for what's worth i still think your client's guilty as hell i was like fuck i was going to be like fuck you dude like i was getting so right. mad but it speaks to the level of performance um how did you feel about rockwell uh, he's good you know it's not like transcendent rockwell i think he's definitely tried to go for and more like Latin fossey verdon or um mm-hmm. Just in juicier parts, like in three billboards or, you know, stuff like that. But uh, he, he, there's just like a swagger that seems really um, effortless for Rockwell these days. And he brings it to, a, you know, like a, the kind of uh, opportunistic but down in his luck lawyer character. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was, he was a good casting choice. I thought the scene where he confronted Kathy Scruggs in the newspaper was was really good like uh the way it like built the tension it, it, or it just felt so like awkward like you're watching two people like scream at each other not knowing what to do but he just plays that off so well and i thought wild was actually really good in that scene too like felt very believable sure. the, the argument um other thoughts on the movie um it, <laughs> speaking of that scene uh r.i.p to newsrooms of that size lots of local papers don't really exist in that fashion anymore it definitely dates the movie um mm-hmm. but yeah you know nothing will, will wow you with the cinematography or the filming but the story ultimately is just really a really strong easily easy to dramatize tale mm-hmm. that making a movie about it you almost a shock it hasn't happened by now because this was what the late uh was this was it 96 or 86 96 96 yeah so um Happy to see, happy, happy got made. Um, funny enough, this movie really nails the one tank Clint uh, persona that Clint Eastwood has as a director. You know, he's almost famous for doing the first or second take, being out by four o'clock every day, taking a lunch, all that shit, right? I mean, he started filming this movie this year on June 24th, and it had its premiere at AFI Fest on November 20th. So he just filmed this shit like that and then was living in the edit bay until it was ready. Like he's a fucking psychopath. He's 89 years old. How does he do this <laughs> and make it this good? It's really impressive. Yeah, it, it, it was really good. And Clint is just, uh, I, he's not consistently good. You know, I, I think there's ups and downs to the quality sure. of, of his movies, but when he hits, he hits. So I hope more oh. people see this. One other thing, this movie was not always at Warner Brothers. It used to be a Fox movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill attached. What, what would your thought be on that story? Jonah Hill, I assume, would be playing Jewel in this in this regard, and, and Leo the lawyer, I'd guess. I don't know. I, I'd, I'd imagine. I, I think it turned out perfect because, uh, especially after Wolf of Wall Street, I could not imagine like seeing Donnie and. Uh, playing Richard Jewell, you know it, that would always be hey, it for me. So the, the, it's the, Georgia here, you know. We got guns. <laughs> Steve Madden. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna fall into a Wolf of Wall Street impression if we keep Rich going. Why don't we move? Why don't we move on to some TV, Dave. Uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Speaking of Jewish three. accents, <laughs> uh, Rachel Brosnahan, you know, re- reprising her role here. Um, yeah, what'd you think? Season three back. I think season two we were a little bit, you know, still good. Maybe not the same quality as season. More one, of a season one B, from a plotting right. perspective. But this really feels like a different different season. They're just setting around the world, touring with Shy Baldwin. You have mm-hmm. a couple of uh, big name uh, people popping up, particularly Sterling K. Brown, yeah, uh, um, which was was awesome, and a little bit of Zach Levi taking off the the suit and coming back to to reprise his role by the end of the season. How are you feeling about Maisel season three? Yeah, I like the season. I because of the changes it made, as you're saying. Uh, by finally making Midge a competent stand-up comic and like committing to that life and like choice in her life, the show finally was able to move forward. You know, we're not the, the will she go back and live with her parents and be the upper West side elite. She was raised to be. No, she's not doing that. Right. She's actually going to be a comic and that he's on the road and actually doing the thing. So it's cool that we finally progressed to that point. And also they smartly were able to separate Midge and Susie after a point by, uh, letting them because of Midge's competence, Susie didn't have to be there the whole time. And I think it just, there's more openness and freedom with that. Um, I think there's lots of things I'd like to see the show still tackle thematically. Midge still is quite a wealthy person. She definitely only thinks about that one um, lens, I think. And like, it's not, it's not like she doesn't come off as a tolerant person, but she's ultimately just was raised as an elite, you know? Mm-hmm. So having this show, I think this season, you know, a lot more black characters around with Shai Baldwin and his entourage and, and Sterling. And um, I think there's more potential with that. And then Joel, on the other hand, is you know, dealing with Asian characters and Chinatown and stuff. I think there's more opportunity to, I think, maybe broaden the character and have the character actually grow and evolve. You know, for uh, Susie, her sexuality has never really been addressed. I think this is kind of assumed based on her, you know, demeanor and her dress and stuff, but that there's potential there as well. And ultimately, I think it's hard to criticize the show not progressing faster because it's kind of been obvious for a while that this is like a golden goose for Amazon that we know they're going to continue to fund as long as Amy Sherman Palladino wants to make the show because it's so successful for them. I mean, I would say this is the best prime video show. Yeah. It's certainly my, certainly my favorite. Um, They've had a lot of misses, but this is one of their, their clear hits, you know, so it, it makes sense that they're slow playing it. But yeah, I, I, overall, I, I enjoyed the season because of the kind of change to the status quo. And while ultimately, I think like the par- parent figures, especially Joel's parents, they definitely feel hamstrung in at this point. At least their lives slightly changed, you know? Yep. So Yeah, you know, I, I think there were some ups and downs in this season for me. Uh, I still think the show is, is excellent and Brosnahan um, is fantastic. Oh, so I mean, she's just, she's like made to play this role. Um, and obviously Alex Bor- Borstein also excellent in her role. Um, uh, the, the parent stuff I think was where I found myself feeling a little bit less interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Tony Shalhoub, he's won two Emmys for this, this role at this point. 
I believe. I think, I think he's been two nominated. nominations. He won for won season once. two. Yeah. Um, and he, I mean, he's he's always funny, but right. I thought I just found his character this season very grating. And you know, yeah. I think the commentary was talking about like young people and trying to you know change the world and change things didn't really land with me. Um, and also uh, the potential of putting the the two in-laws or I guess ex-in-laws together right. in the house had so much and ended up just feeling very grating for me um, a lot of the time. So I was happy when they actually got on the road to go to Florida to see Midge perform because I felt like a bit of a break um, from watching that episode to episode. Sure. The, uh, you know, obviously... The, the Joel stuff uh, we talked about in the past, we don't need to go too much into it, but I don't really find him as a, that much of an interesting character. No, um, I hate it. I, <laughs> they hated it. Um, <laughs> and I also like did not find myself caring about his relationship with, with the, May. the May uh, yeah. it, until, until the last episode when, when Midge, uh, you know, and her meet and she, she's like, I'm going to be a doctor. Midge is like, I'm going to play the Apollo. Like, I was just like, Oh, that's that you're basically just a, an avatar for, for Mitch to dunk on someone. I appreciate that. Um, you know, the character, I think I find the most frustrating with this show though. And I'm talking about all the things I don't like, so I'm going to get to things I do like in a little bit is uh, Marin Hinkle playing Mrs. Weissman. Um, yeah. You know, we, we talked last season about when she was in, in France and really uh, it seemed like her character was going to be developing in some way and then kind of move backwards this felt like another step backwards for her this season. And, you know, you only really get like the one emotional moment when she, when Midge confronts her about not coming to any of her performances and how she doesn't improve her life. And she's like, well, I know what it feels like to have a man totally up, uproot your life. That's what your father's done to me. And you kind of feel for her, but you're, you know, in the same sense, I'm like, you just like uprooted everything last season. And like, try, <laughs> we're trying to take, take back some control and like, I think there's a commentary there that either I'm not, I'm not totally, it's not totally hitting with me or I'm not comprehending or, or seeing, but it feels a bit like, um, like her character isn't really developing in the way I was hoping. And that's right. frustrating because I feel well, like, the, like there's a lot of me on the bone there. Sure. And like, and it's saying it's like the performances are so good and she has great chemistry with Shalhoub that it's like, Oh yeah. You just want to be better. Um, but yeah, like the whole like rejecting the trust fund from her, seemingly oil barren family or whatever it is you know the the jews out in the midwest yeah um while the sentiment about her wanting to be more independent made sense the choice ultimately just came off as super illogical because she had already explained that she had been the one funding their lavish lifestyle and she hadn't expressed desire to live more modestly abe had actually said mm -hmm. that so that it, it just felt a little incongruous to me um I agree. Uh, and the thing about Joel, man, it's just like he, like they just really want you to care about Joel and have his like stuff really true be, truly be the B plot, mm -hmm. or at least the B, the, the 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 C plot, I guess. When uh, Susie's doing the other stuff, but like, man, I just I just don't care about Joel that much. And it's like the, the kids are already not entities. That's kind of been memed to death about how Midge is a shitty mom and stuff. And I just wish Joel was his presence just wasn't around because I just don't really care for the character. I just don't find him very interesting at all. And like his, like, like the whole thing with the club, it's like, well, I think May's inclusion and the, the stuff with the Asian people, like there's some good humor there, but like 
it just feels completely unnecessary and distracting from the stuff we do care about. Also, did you, so the Joel is played by uh, Michael uh, Zegan. Do you have any idea the age difference between Michael Zegan and Rachel Brosnahan? I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't look old or anything, right? No. Well, so Rachel Brosnahan's 29. Michael Zegan is 40. I would Whoa. not have guessed that big a difference. He's a young-looking 40. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty crazy. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. And You were talking about how long we want the show to go on for, and I, I will watch any, any season of the show that Rachel Brosnahan is, is playing Midge and, and Susie sure. is played by Alex Borstein. Um, and, then, you know, they can interchange the parts, you know, find someone else for Susie to manage or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I found it interesting that at the end of the season, they really started to highlight Joel's friend's wife. I'm forgetting her name at this point, but oh, she wow. has, she's a blonde haired girl. Imogene? Yes, Imogene. And she, you know, she goes to like secretary school by the end and really seems <laughs> to be like asserting herself independently. And um, I'm wondering if they're maybe like, setting her up to have a bigger role in coming seasons as like a, a, another avatar for like fe- female empowerment in this show. Um, because it, it just felt like a lot of attention to such a tertiary ca- character um, that maybe they're setting up in case like mm. down the road, Brosnahan doesn't want to do as much of this or isn't oh, available as much. That's what I was kind of thinking. Cause it just felt so like, okay, why are, why are we seeing so much of this one character? We almost like never really see. Um, so uh, j- just a thought on it. Uh, any episodes that stood out? I have one in particular that I really, really loved. Episode five for me. That's the one with uh, Lenny Bruce. Yep. And Midge that go on that. Yeah. Oh, my God. And the, the sexual fucking energy is off the charts. My yep. God. <laughs> just yeah, do that, it already. Just that was really it. creative. That, that, that was well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, um, I thought the, the like, was it a television show that or they were filming or ad or whatever was really, really interesting. I'd never seen anything like that. I didn't know that that was something that happened back in the sixties with Lenny, like kind of just pulling her on stage all of a sudden and them ripping. Yeah, really cool. But I thought that was really well shot. Like they had like a tracking shot through, which I thought was very cool. Yep. It's definitely some, some good stuff there. I, I want more Luke Kirby in this. Like him oh, he's awesome. is just fantastic. So he won the guest actor Emmy for, for season two. Yeah, he, yeah. He's he's fantastic. Um, I liked all the Vegas stuff in general. Um, mm-hmm. just seeing kind of like the, the heyday of Vegas as it's rising up, you know, with the mob influence and stuff, a lot, a lot of good humor there. And the revolving bit about the slot machines, oh, that's a, that should have been something, you know, it's yeah. like in, inherently relatable. Um, yeah. yeah. And like, also like, the show is so glitzy, you know, like the Amazon money really shines. You have Vegas settings and the fountain blue hotel and Florida and stuff. And it always looks so good. And even if some of the bits are inherently more goofy than others, um, I think it's just, you know, the production value is so high that if you're, if you're in on this kind of dialogue and um, humor, that it's always a good time, even if some of the plot choices can be frustrating. Definitely. I totally agree. Um, Maisel, uh, I think definitely a show people hopefully are watching. Uh, give us your thoughts on it. Um, but we're going to move on to a show that I don't know how many people watch this show, but anyone that did, I think, is, is modest was hit, treated, I believe. Was treated because this, this show, Watchmen, Damon, Damon Lindelof's remix continuation, however right. you want to define it, uh, wrapped up last night. And holy shit, man. 
Like, yeah, we, we just did our uh, best of the decade and we both have the leftovers near the top of our list. Check that out. Uh, man, this show, hopefully I'm guessing a Lindelof one-off. I don't see him coming back for a second season of this. Doesn't he actually like openly he said he hopes uh, a per- if they do do a second season, that a person of color um, directs it because he said that most of the most interesting stuff was not written by a white person going to this. Um, this show for me, it's like a 100 out of 100. And uh, I was, we were obviously getting our end of year list together. And I was thinking in most other years, if we didn't have Fleabag and Succession, both also throwing 100 out of 100, this would be easily. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like for the best episodes of television this year, in my opinion. Um, a, a lot, lot to dig into here. But how are you feeling about Watchmen as a whole? And now that you've seen the finale. Yeah. Oh, love it. I agree with the ten out of ten sentiment as well. You get the sense too that Damon uh, is just kind of happy he was able to create this due to his like requisite clout in the <laughs> with HBO and the TV making community because mm-hmm. what he's interested in is not the traditional. Uh, worldview and you know by having a diverse writer's room that he led um, you get truly just genius stuff and obviously this is full spoilers for the full season I don't know why on earth you'd be watching this if you hadn't seen it and uh, another great show and great example of why week to week is a great viewing experience because so many things that just stand out like uh, like episode 6 which is very international assassin-esque where the mystery box is finally opened up and you get to the central thesis of the show and why you get the sense that Damon wanted to actually revisit an IP that most people thought was completely final when it came out. Watchmen, of course, and Warner has done plenty of other comic stuff with Watchmen since, but this is the first time anything's ever felt creatively necessary. And the simple concept of you know, I mean, I mean, Watchmen, the whole conceit of the comic from Alan Moore is what if or why, why would someone ever possibly put a mask on their face and fight mm-hmm. crime? Like, what, what makes you want to be act that way and think that way? Right. Mm-hmm. And Damon actually is able to play off that by introducing uh, what if the first superhero was black and he had to cover his face to keep himself alive and actually be successful and protect himself and stuff. It's like mm-hmm. it's simple yet completely genius. Yeah. And the way the narrative is completely uh, framed around that, that central conceit uh, with amazing callbacks and stuff that's unpredictable while also sequelizing Watchmen by giving us more Adrian Veidt, mm-hmm. Silk Spectre, like, and of course, Dr. Manhattan. It's, it, it's so joyous, man. I'm so, I, I never in a million years thought it would be this impressive. Yeah, that, this definitely blew away my expectations. And I think what I've, I've reflected on most as being most impressive, and there's so much to like. I mean, the performances in this are, are top notch. And, um, you know, you obviously have Lindelof doing some amazing world building. You know, we talked about that after the, the premiere of, of this the show. So check that out as well. Um, is the pacing and the overall story development 
and, and strategy with them because for the first like four episodes you you know that that there's something out there but you're kind of led to believe it's like the it's like the cavalry right that um you're uh, it's this story about race and certainly race is a, a part of it but then episode five comes and there's this twist and you kind of see that this, there's a lot more going on than you recognize and then it takes a step back and it starts to just like unveil 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 through six, seven, eight, you know, six, as you said, giving us a lot of backstory on um, Reeves and uh, about, you know, race and, and how that played into his decision to wear a mask. And, um, you know, that's obviously an expert episode, but then you get an episode like uh, a God walks into uh, a bar and you, you get that whole episode about Dr. Manhattan and which I think is, you know, right up there with episode six is one of the most masterful episodes mm. of TV this year. Um, and just like it uncovered layer after layer after layer, so perfectly leading up to the final episode, which I, I thought the finale last night was perfect. Um, not only in terms of, I think, having a really satisfying ending to the story um, and wrapping up a lot of questions, but also falling back on to some of the the uh, original Watchmen themes to, to do so. And, and, you know, some of the, some of the old tricks you get bite being, you know, a hero again by doing something, you know, terrible that he did before you get Manhattan kind of going back to the idea of like um, what it means, like how he struggled with the idea of like being a God and how he actually was like planning to, you know, take away his powers. So, uh, you know, to kind of like unburden himself, but I think also the world of, of the things that he, he was or wasn't doing. Um, and then of course, to end it with like the egg thing and to have that last scene with um, Angela, with, with her grandpa and all that, I think you just touched on so many levels and so many themes and wrapped it up really well, you know, and people joke around that, you know, not every thread was left on, 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 touch like who's loop man like yeah we're probably never gonna find out probably it's on pdpedia yeah but um there's there's still like uh, just so much to marvel at with this show um what else Uh, give me more of your thoughts yeah um so i think one of the most important things to reflect on the show is that it uh the way it ends it's like a perfect grace note. Like I don't really understand anyone who want to clamor for season two. You know, I don't. I don't think of it as a cliffhanger with um, Angela eating the egg, which is an awesome callback to everything with eggs in the beginning and and the transfer of power and stuff. And it kind of reminds me of the way the Watchmen comic ends, where Rorschach's uh, journal is sent to the press, and you're like, oh, will this undo Osmandius' plan to save the world? Who's to know? But it's like you don't need to know. Like right. the, the message, message has landed already. Um, and yeah, everything with Lady True was so good. And even the way they handled the Cyclops and the Seventh Cavalry at the end, where it's like you never like really legitimized them. They kind of just got treated like the goons they were. Yeah, that and that was really satisfying as well. Um, and then the cyclical nature of the way everything ended with um, Reeves back in back in the, the theater where it all began, you know? 
Um, Did you notice as uh, they left the theater that only the MR, or, uh, the DR and the M were lit yep. up? On the yeah. So expertly done. Yeah, and as you said about episode eight too, the whole, the, I think, so the Watchmen movie from Snyder, which looks good and is pretty like, you know, faithful A to Z plot retelling. One thing that movie never was able to really communicate at all, and I think actually people that haven't read the comic probably weren't aware of this, but like the whole uh, um, multi-dimensional uh, existence of Dr. Manhattan, how he's in all parts of his life at once, and what that can do to your psyche, that's not touched on really at all in the movie, but episode eight communicates that in such an amazing way, and you'd think mm. the way like we have that conversation happening in the in the past and it's communicating stuff in the present and the other parts of the past and yeah uh, angela's narrating lots of it the whole time and you would think that would be confusing or grating but it never was mm-hmm. and i mean yeah yeah abdul mateen who, who plays manhattan and cal he was i think fantastic and you know just wa- watching him um you know when, when he comes out to, to fight off the cavalry and you're like oh he's gonna reject everything and it's like nope he uh it's all part of the future he saw. And then later on you hear, uh, was it uh, true or Vite? I, I think it was true. Who's, who was like, well, you know, Manhattan could have done more with those powers. And it's like, man, it's like, imagine like that existence and having all that, whether it's actually like a gift and stuff. It's mm-hmm. uh, there, there's so much here. It was so great. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Abdul Mateen, you know, we've seen him most recently in like striking vipers or Aquaman, Aquaman. Right. Um, but he really showed me something with this role. And it, of course it's a much like more subdued role. Like Manhattan is a pretty melancholy character in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, burdened by, as you said, the weight of his powers, but I, I thought he was excellent. And we finally got to see the, the blue schlong in the last episode looking good. Great, yeah, great blue schlong. <laughs> uh, you know, I was wondering how you felt about like all the stuff with Ozymandias because uh, he really, I, we talked about Greg Sprinkles earlier in, from an HBO show. This felt like Jeremy Irons Sprinkles throughout because it, you kind of got like little scene here, little scene here, mm-hmm. and it was a little bit more by the end than the end. And I felt like every time he's on screen, you're just having the best possible time. Hell yeah. So from what we know at the production, like, he the everything with Ozymandias on them at the manor was separate, like filmed in Wales and stuff. But by the end, you understand like it was you know, it was a lot of confusion in the beginning with the manor and like the, the these clones of uh, Miss Crookshanks and the, and the guy I for his name and and like the the babies in the water and the ward and like what the fuck is going on here? You find out we're on the moon of Europa, but then you realize what, for episode eight that oh wait yeah Ozymandias someone who who is so self-centered because of his intellect yeah he probably would not be satisfied with not getting credit for saving the world with a master plan and he would not feel fulfilled and having Manhattan be the one to attempt to achieve that fulfillment and then ultimately as Manius realizing that he won't be fulfilled here either he needs to get off the rock and it's like oh wow I actually really like that I think it's a it's a, it's a smart way to introduce the character who also is able to serve the grander plot due to you know his presence um I like that a lot. Um, and I think ultimately Damon's decision to not have Night Owl uh, come back and just focus on everyone else who was still alive, uh, I, th- I think was, was, was a smart call. Apparently he's still in jail, according to the PDPD information. But uh, yeah, that was many stuff was fun because I- Irons was, I think, was a perfect casting too. He was oh, a delight the whole time. Yeah, he he was just fantastic. I really loved all the scenes with him. And like I said, he was just 
you just seem to be having a, a ball with this with this role. It's going to be absolutely ridiculous the whole time. Um, <laughs> the defense rests. Yeah, I, I thought Regina King was good. Um, oh. oh yeah, and she's just a class actor. Um, but you know who I felt was a bit um, like maybe didn't get the shiniest there was Tim Blake Nelson. You yeah, know? So looking you, glass. Yeah, see, you get him in like episode four and five, really yeah. getting a lot of time. His with him. his flashback episode was also fantastic. Yes, explaining what Osmandius's plan could have done to the psyche of people at the time. Yeah, you got to see the squid. Like so, it was, uh, it was so awesome, and I, I think um, I, I was glad to see his character get a bit of justice at the end. You know, especially after he, uh, it, like you said, it, it looked like his episode looked at how that that squid following would have impacted other people, and then he kind of devoted his life to justice after that, and wanting to like right. Uh, stop the bad guys so uh, I felt like that was pretty cool and also again like the last line like that guy talks too much it was great <laughs> I also really like Jean Smart like and I've liked yeah. her in pretty much everything she's Arco, she's done Legion. recently but uh, just seeing her be like a, a grizzled old vet who's just very like pessimistic and worn down by uh, you know her, her past as Silk Spectre and now as Agent Blake and mm-hmm. almost like work against what she she popularized is very interesting so there's so much here to like man <laughs> damon lindelof i mean is there another tv creator i mean i guess probably would gilligan up there with him? like yep gilligan um benioff I and mean, weiss maybe then well then you gotta think of like the hbo people that have done multiple things right so it's like david chase hasn't followed up the sopranos matthew weiner followed up mad men but it was the romanoffs uh, we, we can, you, if you want to hear us talk about that, it's uh, it's up there. But and Simon, uh, Simon, yeah, yeah, Simon, because Simon has there. the has, has the quantity to match. Yeah, and the yeah. world building. Yeah, yeah, him and Lynn. I'd, I would almost like to see what they could create together. In a and sense. I guess um, David Milch, you know, I mean, he he has a was it a Alzheimer's now, but he has a quite the CV as well. Obviously, with Deadpool at the top of the list. So, yeah, I think that's the elite group. Esmail, you know. Uh, I we think, hope rising. Yeah, definitely rising. Um, Even I Holly in the lesser extent as well, rising for sure. So, um, but yeah, Lindelof for me is like uh, top of the spear. I, I think everything he creates is so masterful and so layered, and just he just delivers the, these episodes in such a weird but delightful way. You're just uh, thematically just the things that Damon cares about. Like we right. said in the beginning, but it's like the world building in, in watch this Watchmen is so great, but it, we're not we're not worried about having red predations explained to us. Right, L- L- Lube Man was cool, but like again, not the point. Mm-hmm. And like it always has got back to the point while just always making you think. You know, yeah, that's, I think that's 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 a strength. And you know, another thing too, I think this might be a little underrated coming off the finale, but um. What's uh, Blake's uh, comment about Osmandius when they're when they're going to arrest him? And it's like, uh, yeah, uh, maybe, but like pe- the world's changed. People don't think that way anymore. It's like, yeah, you know, the justification for how Osmandius saved the world back then, you know, the probably doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm probably just going to take you to task for that now. I, I, yeah. I love that as a, as a bookend too. Yeah, people keep saying that, but it never happens. Like, pretty Perfect. just. Yeah, so good. Uh, Watchmen. If you for some reason didn't watch it, listen to this. Watch, go watch it. Like, just stop what you're doing <laughs> now and go watch it. Um, 
leave work, go home. Anyways, uh, we're going to wrap up there. Dave, what do we got next week? Uh, well, fucking Star Wars comes out Thursday. Yeah. Episode 9, obviously, needs an introduction. We'll be talking about that shortly. Also, on the 20th, on Prime, the Aeronauts, Eddie Redmayne, Felicity Jones, back at it again. That's debuting on Prime. Uh, and then the two popes will be on Netflix, the Price Anthony Hopkins Awards contender, uh, as you can imagine, about the last two popes. Mr. Robot will be ending uh, its fourth and final season on Sunday. So we'll be talking about all that in the weeks to come. Also, a little further on the horizon, Little Women, Uncut Gems, Cats, 1917, lots of good shit coming but we'll also be coming at you with our best uh movies television and music of 2019 in short order so make sure you're subscribed and our best music of the decade very soon so stay tuned for that as well i think you might have said that but just wanted to yep that's coming out next week all right catch you all next week peace out yeah.